Today's reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, which you will also find in your new sheet. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Celeste. Uh, My name's Alex. I'm the... um campus minister here at our Carlton campus. Uh, lovely to see you. Uh, if you're new or visiting, welcome. I don't have any strong opinions about coriander, but I really dislike baby corn. It's awful. I was telling these guys before. Anyway, back to more important things. This week we start a new series in the book of Hebrews, as we've heard earlier, and we're really focusing tonight on these four magnificent verses about Jesus. But first we're going to take a bit of a look at the bigger picture of the book of Hebrews, and hopefully over the coming weeks that will help us navigate through kind of the trees of the first few chapters uh, if you want to sort of look a, a bit more in depth at the kind of overall picture of Hebrews, uh, on Wednesday night, uh, Ridley lecturer Andrew Malone came and spoke to us about that. Uh, if you weren't there, you can catch uh, the recording online. So just go to our website and check out our resources page and you can get that there. Another way you can do that is um, you can, in, the, in the foyer, we're selling uh, Peter Adam, uh, uh, our vicar emeritus, uh, uh, one of our congregation members here, Peter Adam's commentary. He wrote on the book of Hebrews. You can get that for 20 bucks. Uh, in the foyer as well, if you want to sort of read along that as we go through the book together. Now, there are lots of types of writing in the Bible. There's uh, poetry, there's law, there's um, stories, there's lots of different uh, types of writing. What's the book of Hebrews? Well, if you kind of jump to the end, the book of Hebrews ends like a New Testament letter. There's uh, greetings and, and things like that. But if you read through the body, it actually reads more like a sermon. It has uh, large sections of deep theological reflection. Uh, It kind of unpacks and explains the Old Testament. And it has kind of lots of uh, things to do, lots of application points based on those things. And the writer of the Hebrews actually describes uh, the book like this. This is in chapter 13. It'll appear on the screen. Brothers and sisters... I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. Uh, Exhortation means uh, my encouragement or or my word of urging you, for in fact I have written to you quite briefly. So it's actually a a short sermon uh, here in the book of Hebrews. And it's also a really great place to see uh, how the Old Testament is uh, really fulfilled uh, in Christ and how the Old Testament and the New uh, Testament intersect or come together. And we're going to see that over the coming weeks. Having said all of that, we don't actually know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Now, some people have kind of speculated, think, oh, maybe the Apostle Paul, maybe this is the kind of thing he might write. 
But that's unlikely, and I'll say a bit more about that later. So really, we don't know. Uh, What is clear, though, is that the writer knew uh, his original readers and was probably one of their leaders. Uh, He was away from them, and so he, he wrote to them what he wanted to say to them in person, this word of encouragement, this word of exhortation. Well, who was it written to? Well, again, we don't really know. You look at the title, uh, To the Hebrews, that's kind of not very specific, a broad group of people, Jewish Christians. But the title isn't original. It was actually given to the book in the late 2nd century. So we don't know exactly uh, where it was written to, but there are some clues, some things we do find out about who it was written to as we go through the letter. It was probably written to a group of Jewish Christians or to a Christian community with lots of people who had a Jewish background because as you read through the letter you see a lot of, hear a lot about Israel's history through it, the stories of Israel, lots of explanations about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and the Jewish institutions. You see, the writer says, they were good, but Jesus is great. He's so much better. They were the shadow, but Christ... He's the reality, the things, uh, he's the one that they were all pointing to. Uh, Another clue about the original recipients is given in chapter 2, verse 3. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, that's Jesus, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Uh, So these people, but also the author of the letter, it seems uh, they didn't actually uh, know Jesus Personally, they hadn't heard from Jesus himself. And that's one reason why Paul is probably not the author because the Apostle Paul makes it clear that he actually saw the risen Christ, that he heard from him. But the writer and uh, the people he's writing to, they, uh, they heard of this great salvation from those who had heard Jesus. So they were kind of one step down the track. They were like uh, second generation Christians. And as we read on in the letter, we also find out this about the original recipients. They had suffered some significant persecution in the past. This is from chapter 10, from verse 32 on. Remember those earlier days, so sometime in the past, after you had received the light, so just after you became Christians, sometime after that, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Why? Because you knew that you yourself had better and lasting possessions. So sometime in the past they'd undergone this kind of trial, this suffering, But at that time, their Christian faith had flourished because they knew what was really important. However, uh, since then, uh, a problem had developed. Uh, Things had become a little bit unstuck. A very serious spiritual crisis had emerged amongst them. And we know that because, you see, scattered right through this letter a number of urgent warnings, a series of alarm bells that toll right through the letter. Here are just a few examples from chapter 2. We must pay the most careful attention 
therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Or chapter 3, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Or chapter 4, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, that is, God's new creation, his future, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. He means the generation of Israelites that failed to go into the promised land. Don't follow their example and perish, fall short of God's rest. And these alarm bells, these warnings come in response to this great spiritual crisis. You see, in the face of perhaps persecution, in the face of worldly attractions and temptations, or maybe because they were kind of uh, just being Christians for a while and now just growing a little bit lukewarm, a bit apathetic. Some of them seem to be feeling the pull back to their old faith, their old Jewish faith. Some are feeling the temptation to desert Christ altogether. That's the great spiritual crisis. Often you hear talk about the gap or the gulf between us and the Bible. That was distant in culture and time, 2,000 years ago. So what relevance does it really have for us now? Well, as I read through the letter here in 2023, I reckon this gap, this gulf isn't so big. Because this great spiritual crisis that's being addressed so powerfully in this letter, is that not a crisis we face today in churches all around the world? It's a danger that arises after you've been a Christian a while, a danger that the writer describes as drifting. We heard it before. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. It's drifting, that's the danger, like a boat that's become untethered from its moorings, just kind of drifting into the ocean. Drifting from Christ the secure centre, the living heartbeat of our lives, drifting from him towards something more tangible, something more comfortable, something more secure, something we think might be better. That's the great spiritual crisis that the writer is writing to. I know that crisis and I reckon you might know that as well. And the purpose of this letter is to address that crisis, to warn against the dangers of drifting and to urge us, cling to Christ. Cling to him and the salvation that's found in him alone. And that's a message we all need to hear. Well, tonight we're going to look at these first four verses and we'll get there soon. But first we're going to jump forward a little bit so we can really understand the purpose of these verses. If you've got your uh, new sheet and outline, please just flip over to the back or if you've got your Bible, you can have a look at the passage in context. Uh, notice that verse, chapter 1, verse 5 begins with the word for. 
And so you see right in verse 5, right down to the end of the chapter, uh, this, is from, uh, this is really one big argument from right through chapter 1. And if you want to see where this argument ends up, the point of the argument, you need to go through to chapter 2. Uh, and the point is flagged there in the outline by the word therefore. It's in the middle of the sentence uh, in, but, uh, in, this, in the translation here, but in the original it's right at the start. And it's telling us, therefore, since all this, therefore do this, therefore react like this. This is the conclusion, the end point, the application of our passage. Now listen to it with me. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was, was binding and every violation and disobedience received uh, and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? If that was the message then, it was authoritative and definitive, how much more now? Right. This salvation was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. We all know people who have drifted away, right? Maybe that's you sometime in the past. Maybe that's you now. Well, how do you guard against it? How do you make sure that we and our brothers and sisters around us don't drift away? Pay most careful attention to what we have heard, the word about Christ, the Son. His word about a very great salvation. I don't know what you think about Christianity, but it's not primarily about patching up your problems. You might uh, become a Christian and, and you might uh, sort out some of your issues, but you can do that sometimes quite well, at least superficially, without being a Christian. Uh, maybe some people think that Christianity is, is about being a good person. And hopefully when you become a Christian, God starts to work in your life, but you can also have a good life and, and you know, be kind and generous without being a Christian. That's not what Christianity is primarily about. That's not the centre. At its heart, Christianity is about a very great salvation announced by and centred on the Lord Jesus Christ. Never forget that. Right? It's a salvation that began with his life and death and resurrection, but its fulfilment, the end of it, lies in the future, in the new creation, when Jesus comes again. And the point that the writer is driving at that we must pay careful attention to keep to Jesus, to keep to that great salvation, for apart from Christ there is no salvation. And he's going to do that to help us keep to Christ. He does it here in these first four verses in the most powerful way by pointing us to the majesty, the glory of the Son. 
Now, given that's what we know about the purpose of these four verses, let me read them to you again. Just keep that in mind as I read. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he has become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. In the original, that's, One long, remarkable sentence. Amazing. And we need to hear it. We need to hear about the unmatchable greatness, the unrivaled glory of Jesus, the Son of God. Because once you know that, once the Spirit has implanted that here and here. How could you ever drift away? Now one way to get across how great, how magnificent the Christ is, is by comparing him to something else that's also great and then showing how Jesus is so much better. That's what happens right through Hebrews and that's what's happening in our passage tonight. Verse 1, in the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now this comparison, it might not grab you immediately, but just pause for a moment. Think about the Old Testament. Think about the prophets. God, the creator of all things, the judge of all people, has actually spoken. He's communicated, he's revealed himself to us. The Old Testament, well, they contain the very words of God. That's what it is. God speaking to us. If you have a look at your outline and and head down to the last sentence, verse 4, in blue as well. That's, it's making a similar point. In the Old Testament period, God spoke through the prophets, but he often delivered his message through angels. They were his divine messengers. They had his divine authority. And the writer will go on to speak more about Jesus and the angels. But the point for today is this. The, the Old Testament scriptures, they're extraordinary because God speaks to us through them. But, verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Yes, the Old Testament is remarkable, but, but now God has spoken by his Son. These last days are not some special period in the future. They began with the coming of Christ in his life, his death and resurrection. The last days are... Now, you're in them. And now God's speaking, his revelation has reached a climax. 
He has spoken by his son and God has spoken in a way that he has never spoken before. He is God's greatest, his final revelation. God has spoken definitively through him. Friends, who better to reveal God, to make him and his ways known than the glorious son? No one. Jesus, he's the ultimate prophet of God. And so that means the fact that God has revealed himself through Jesus like this, it means that God isn't a mystery. He's not shrouded in some cloud of unknowing. He's not inaccessible. If you want to truly know God, well, you can. What great news that is. And you don't need special enlightenment, you don't need special rituals, you just need to come to Jesus. And we meet him in the scriptures as we're doing tonight. How good is that? And if the Son of God is God's fall, his final, his definitive word, how important, how urgent it is that we pay most careful attention, that we listen to him, that we heed him, that we obey him. Before we move on, let me just say a thing about uh, what this means for the Old Testament. It does, just because Christ has come, it doesn't make the Old Testament uh, irrelevant or redundant. He's not the new model that makes the old model obsolete, that we kind of just chuck in the recycling. Now, in Jesus, in his work and words, the Old Testament actually finds its true meaning. God has still spoken to us by his prophets, We must still listen to and obey these words, but we must understand them now through the lens of Christ. Indeed, to fully understand Christ, we need to read the Old Testament scriptures. And that's what the Hebrew, that's what the author to the Hebrews does. He helps us understand the Old Testament and understand Jesus as they interpret each other. Now, in order to help us see more vividly the greatness of Jesus, our writer makes a series of further statements. And some of them are allusions to Old Testament texts, which I'll briefly uh, unpack. And this is from the second uh, sentence on the outline, the one in kind of green. It's hard to tell in this light, but I assure you it's green. Uh, From the second part of verse 2, Jesus is the one whom he, that he is God, appointed heir of all things. This really, I think, is an allusion to Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2 uh, is about God's kind of ideal, his perfect king. But if you read through the history of Israel, you'll know that that king never existed. He was, they were all sinful and, and broken and weak and flawed and they died. And what the writer is saying here is that Jesus Christ, he's the king. He's that ideal king. He is the true son. In Psalm 2, the king who is called God's son, after his coronation, he's given all things. This is from verse 8. I will make the nations of your I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Well, Jesus was raised from the dead. 
And that was like his coronation as well. It was God saying, you are my king. And this is what he said. All authority has been given to me. You see, Jesus is the one that God has appointed to rule over, to own all things. The entire universe is his and he reigns over it. And if that's who Jesus is, can you see why it's so important we pay most careful attention to him? Now we're going to go to the end. We're going to skip and go to the end of verse 3, which is the second line from the bottom, the other one in that greenish colour. Now, there's something about how this kind of passage works. I think it's been very deliberately structured and I've kind of tried to reflect that in your outline. So it's important at this point you have your outline here so you can see what I'm talking about. Uh, I think the verse is structured in like a series of like concentric statements, right? Uh, The first statement is related to the last, the second one to the second last and so on. And and this kind of is designed to to focus our attention on what's in the middle, Uh, Some people call it a chiasm. You can call it that if you want. But more importantly, uh, this bit of information, uh, more more important than this bit of information is knowing how this passage works so we can kind of understand it a bit. And so you can see um, uh, the last part of verse 3 corresponds to the second part that I just talked about. So we we talked about him being the heir of all things and now we're going to talk about that second line from the bottom. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And again, there's another allusion to the Old Testament, and I think it's this time to Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 has similarities with Psalm 2. It's called a messianic psalm. Messiah equals king. Again, it's God's description of God's ideal king who rules the world. Uh, the right hand here, as it says, is a reference to the place of ultimate authority at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. However, if you go to Psalm 110, it adds to Psalm 102. It says that this ideal king is also a priest. Now, a priest is, is one in the Old Testament who stands between us and God. In the Old Testament, the priest acted like a bridge to bring us in all our brokenness, our weakness, our sin into the presence of a holy God, into relationship with him. And that's who Jesus is. He's our ultimate priest. There were lots of priests in the Old Covenant, but none like Jesus. By his death on the cross, he made the ultimate sacrifice. By his blood, he purified us from the stain and guilt of all our sin. He won for us full and final forgiveness. He opened the way to God forever. That's what it means when uh, he says he sat down after a long day's work. If you can, what do you do? You sit down. That's what Jesus did after his work was finished. His offering was accepted. It was complete. Sin had been paid for finally, fully and forever. And because of Jesus, we can come to God with joy, in confidence, 
in full relationship with the Father. Friends, do you you see Jesus now? Do you see him? His his glory, his, his magnificence. There is none like him. He's the perfect prophet, the perfect king, the perfect priest. Do you see how how Jesus is so much better? Do you see how he surpasses all those trivial things we might fill our lives with, those fleeting things we might set our eyes on that might cause us to drift away? These verses really are a prologue. A lot of these magnificent things that we're reading about tonight will be expanded further as we kind of delve right into the book of Hebrews. But we're not quite finished yet. Go back to the end of verse 2, third line from the top. The Son is the one through whom also he, that's God, made the universe. Just listen to that. Through Jesus, God made the universe. Jesus is more than the king. He's more than the one who has all authority. Jesus is the one through whom all things were created. Third line from the bottom. He's the one who is sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's Jesus. All things owe their origin and their existence to whom? To what? To Jesus. Our education teaches us to understand that things are kind of just there. You you go outside and there's trees and clouds and there's a world and there's a universe and it's just there. No directional purpose, no will or authority ruling over it. But it isn't all just there. Existence isn't meaningless. There's behind it an almighty creator and sustainer, a personal will and power. And if that was taken away, all of this would cease to exist. Our beings would cease. And that personal will and power, it's it's extraordinary. It's Jesus the glorious Son. And so now we move to this most extraordinary reality of them all, right at the centre, the beginning of verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Friends, when we see Jesus, we see nothing less than the radiance of God's glory. When we see Jesus, we see the exact representation of his being. How do you express that in words? It's hard, isn't it? The Gospel writer, John, uh, says this in chapter 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's hard to express it. You need to read about Jesus, don't you? You need to see him. 
Verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. There is nothing better than Jesus. There is no one better than Jesus. How could there possibly be? He's the prophet. Through him, God has spoken his fullest and final word. He's the king who sits enthroned with all power and authority. He's the priest who's fully forgiven us, cleansed his people from sin. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the divine and glorious son. He's the only one who can bring us into full relationship with God. Why would you ever drift away from him? What could possibly be so precious, so important, that you would neglect Jesus? What would tempt you into sin or disobedience or unbelief or neglect? But it happens. And so, that's why we must pay careful attention so we don't drift away. So today, will you pay more careful attention to Jesus? This year, will you stay with him? Will you cling to him? Let me pray for us uh, as the musicians come up. Father God, we thank you for Jesus, your glorious son. As we read this wonderful book, help us to see him more clearly in all his glory and help us cling to him. Amen.